Hello, caller. How's the holiday season treating you? No better or worse than any other time of year. You're still being a Grinch? But Christmas is over. Christmas isn't the only holiday that should concern you. Well, what else should I be on the lookout for then? A man who fulfilled his New Year's resolution to become a famous serial killer, a machete-wielding anti-Semite, and a gang of Diwali killers. Here's part two of Holiday Killers. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. At Hookswitch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Holiday Killers Part 2, Colin Ireland, The Gay Slayer. Colin Ireland, also known as The Gay Slayer, was an unemployed divorcee when he made the 1993 New Year's resolution to become a famous serial killer. And unfortunately for the five victims he killed over the span of three months, he succeeded. Ireland, who terrorized London's gay community, was caught later the same year when CCTV footage showed him with his last victim. Colin Ireland was born in 1954 in Dartford, Kent, to an unmarried teenage couple. Shortly after his birth, his father left him and his 17-year-old mother. His father is not named on his birth certificate, and Ireland did not know his identity. He was raised in poverty by his mother. They moved many times. In the early 1960s, she married. When she became pregnant, she put Ireland into foster care. He later returned to her. In 1966, she married another man. During the 1960s, in Kent, Ireland was propositioned on three occasions and spied on by men who were pedophiles. In his mid-teens, he was sent to Borstal, a type of youth detention center in the United Kingdom, for theft, and while there, committed an act of arson to another resident's belongings. At the age of 17, Ireland was convicted of robbery. He escaped and was returned to Borstal. In the attempt to make ends meet, Ireland had a series of manual jobs. Then in 1975, he was convicted of car theft, criminal damage, and two burglaries, for which he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. Ireland was released in November 1976 and moved to Swindon, Wiltshire. He lived with a woman and her children for a few months. In 1977, he was convicted of extortion, for which he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. In 1980, he was convicted of robbery, for which he was sentenced to two years imprisonment. In 1981, he was convicted of attempted deception. In 1982, Ireland married Virginia Zamet. The couple and their daughter lived in the Holloway area of London. In 1985, he was convicted again and sentenced to six months for, quote, going equipped to cheat. He divorced in 1987 after his wife discovered he had committed adultery. In 1989 in Devon, he married Janet Young. He was violent towards her and stole from her. In the early 1990s, they separated. She and her children became homeless. He moved to Southend-on-Sea, where he became homeless himself and lived in a hostel. He later moved to his own flat. Whilst living there, he traveled to the Colerne Arms, a gay club in Earl's Court, London, where he met his first victims. Peter Walker, a 45-year-old choreographer, took Ireland back to his flat in Battersea. There he was bound and ultimately suffocated by a plastic bag being placed over his head. Ireland placed two teddy bears in a 69 position on the body. He left Walker's dogs locked in another room. The day after the murder, having heard no news reports of the crime, he called the Samaritans and a journalist from the Sun newspaper, advising them of the dogs and that he had murdered their owner. He told them he wanted to become famous for being a 
serial killer. A former boyfriend of Peter was later interviewed and told the police that Peter did not like sadomasochism and was more than likely forced into it by Ireland. After the murder took place, Ireland said, I tied him up, went and got a carrier bag from the kitchen and put it over his head and I think in a way, he wanted to die. I detected in him this lack of desire to carry on. I think he knew he was going to die. He was quite controlled about it, end quote. Christopher Dunn was a 37-year-old librarian who lived in Weldstone. He was found naked in a harness. Ireland tortured Dunn for his pin by setting fire to Dunn's genitals. His death was initially believed to be an accident that occurred during an erotic game. In addition, because he lived in a different area from Walker, a different set of investigators worked on the case. For these reasons, the death was initially not linked to Walker's. Ireland met 35-year-old businessman Perry Bradley III at the Colhearn Pub. Bradley lived in Kensington and was the son of Texas Democratic Party fundraiser Perry Bradley Jr. The two men returned to Bradley's flat, where Ireland suggested that he tie Bradley up. Bradley expressed his displeasure at the idea. In order to get Bradley to comply, Ireland told him that he was unable to perform sexually without elements of bondage. Bradley hesitantly cooperated and was soon trussed up on his own bed, face down, with a noose around his neck. After Ireland had secured Bradley, he demanded money and a pin number under the threat of torture. Ireland assured Bradley that he was merely a thief and would leave after stealing Bradley's money. After Bradley gave Ireland his pin number, which Ireland later used to steal 200 pounds, along with 100 pounds in cash stolen from Bradley's flat, Ireland told him that he should go to sleep as he wouldn't be leaving his flat for hours. Bradley eventually did fall asleep and Ireland momentarily thought of leaving Bradley unharmed. Ireland then realized that Bradley could identify him and used that noose which he had earlier placed around Bradley's neck to strangle him. Bradley eventually did fall asleep and Ireland momentarily thought of leaving Bradley unharmed. Ireland then realized that Bradley could identify him, and he used that noose, which he had earlier tied around Bradley's neck, to strangle him. Before leaving Bradley's flat, Ireland placed a doll on top of the dead man's body. Ireland, angered that he had received no publicity, even after three murders, killed again within three days. He met and courted 33-year-old Andrew Collier, a housing warden, and the pair went to Collier's home in Dalston. After entering the flat, there was a disturbance outside and both men went to the window to investigate. Ireland gripped a horizontal metal bar that ran across the window. He later forgot to wipe the bar for fingerprints during his usual cleanup phase. The police later found three prints. Once he had tied up his victim on the bed, Ireland again demanded his victim's bank details. This time, his victim refused to comply. After killing Collier's cat, Ireland strangled Collier with a noose. He put a condom on Collier's penis and placed the dead cat's mouth over it, and placed the cat's tail in Collier's mouth. Ireland was angered at discovering Collier was HIV positive while rummaging through his personal effects looking for bank details. He then phoned the police, asking why they had not linked the four murders. He left the next morning with 70 pounds in cash. A suspected reason for his killing of the cat was that after Ireland killed Walker and had left the previous victim's dogs locked in a separate room, he later called anonymously to advise parties to the fact that these dogs were being or had been locked up. As a result, the media called the killer an animal lover. He strangled the cat to demonstrate that the animal lover assumption had been wrong. An alternate theory for the cat's death was simply that Ireland was angry at Collier for nearly infecting him with HIV. After that killing, Ireland was annoyed he wasn't getting the national attention he thought his murders deserved, so he called the Kensington police. He said he had read a lot of books on serial killers and told police, if you don't stop me, 
it will be one a week, end quote. His undoing came in his next murder. Ireland's fifth victim was a Maltese chef named Emmanuel Spittery, age 41, whom he had met at the Cole Hearn pub. Spittery was persuaded to be cuffed and bound on his bed. Once more, Ireland demanded his pin but did not obtain it. He again used a noose to kill. After carrying out his post-murder ritual of cleaning and clearing the scene, Ireland set fire to the flat and left. He rang the police later to tell them to look for a body at the scene of a fire and added that he would probably not kill again. Little did he know, he had recently been captured on CCTV and an investigation was underway. There are suggestions that homophobia on the part of the police delayed the linking of all the murders and that they were initially not handled well, but police eventually connected all five killings. The crimes were publicized by the mass media and it quickly became known in the gay community that a serial killer was specifically targeting gay men. Investigation revealed that Spittery had left the Colhern pub and traveled home with his killer by train, and a security video successfully captured the two of them on the railway platform at Charing Cross Railway Station. Ireland recognized himself and decided to tell police he was the man with Spittery but not the killer. He claimed to have left Spittery in the flat with another man. However, police had also found fingerprints in Collery's flat, which they linked to Ireland. Ireland claimed he decided to become a serial killer one New Year's Eve after reading an FBI book about profiling serial killers. Ireland was charged with the murders of Collier and Spittery and confessed to the other three while awaiting trial in prison. Ireland had robbed those he killed because he was unemployed at the time and he needed funds to travel to and from London when hunting for victims. When his case came to the Old Bailey, the criminal courthouse, on the 20th of December 1993, Ireland admitted to all charges and was given life sentences for each. The judge, Michael Sachs, said he was exceptionally frightening and dangerous, adding, To take one human's life is an outrage. To take five is carnage. On December 22, 2006, Ireland was one of 35 life sentence prisoners whose name appeared on the Home Office list of prisoners who'd been issued with whole life tariffs and were unlikely ever to be released. Ireland's crimes received sensationalist coverage in the tabloid press, as well as the nickname The Gay Slayer. He was headlined as Jack the Gripper by the News of the World. Ireland died on February 21, 2012, at Wakefield Prison. A spokeswoman for Her Majesty's Prison Service said, He is presumed to have died from natural causes. A post-mortem will follow. Later, his death was ascribed to pulmonary fibrosis, which is a condition in which the lungs become scarred over time, and a fractured hip he had suffered earlier in the month as preliminary causes of death. The murders proved that marginalized groups may be more at risk of police overlooking key details because of preconceived biases and prejudices. Ireland himself told police that he had no vendetta against gay men, but picked on them because they were the easiest targets. Even in more recent reports, the language around this case is that Colin Ireland posed as a gay man and there's no mention that he potentially was a self-loathing, latent homosexual himself. In May 2007, a report by the Independent Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Advisory Group found that the Metropolitan Police inquiry into the murders was, quote, hampered by a lack of knowledge of the gay scene in London and the special culture of S&M bondage. On the night of December 28th, 2019, the seventh night of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, a masked man named Grafton E. Thomas wielding a large knife or machete invaded the home of a Hasidic rabbi in Monzi, New York, where a Hanukkah party was underway, and Thomas began stabbing the guests. Grafton E. Thomas has been arrested at least seven times since 2001 on charges of assault, 
resisting arrest, killing or injuring a police animal, driving under the influence, possessing controlled substances, and menacing a police or peace officer. He was jailed briefly in 2013 for possession of a controlled substance. Another previous arrest was for punching a police horse. Thomas was further charged in 2018 for weapon possession, endangerment, and menacing a policeman. Thomas had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia in 2018 when he underwent a psychiatric evaluation at the Orange County Medical Center after being arrested for confronting a police officer with a knife. Also, investigators found handwritten journals expressing anti-Semitic views including material about Adolf Hitler, Nazi culture, and drawings of a Star of David and of a swastika among Thomas's possessions. Authorities stated that his journals also included what appeared to be a reference to a fringe religious movement, Black Hebrew Israelites, which the Anti-Defamation League and Southern Poverty Law Center have identified as linked to anti-Semitism, with Thomas stating that Hebrew Israelites have taken from Ebonoid Israelites. On the Saturday before the attack, the suspect's mobile browser was used to access an article titled New York City increases police presence in Jewish neighborhoods. In recent weeks, Thomas had searched online for phrases such as why did Hitler hate the Jews multiple times as well as German Jewish temples near me. He had also searched for Zionist temples in Elizabeth, New Jersey and in Staten Island, New York. Thomas is also under investigation on suspicion of having committed a previous stabbing attack on an Orthodox Jewish man on his way to an early prayer service at 5.30 a.m. on November 20th, 2019. The victim was critically injured. Thomas's lawyer issued a statement on behalf of his family, asserting Thomas did not belong to any hate groups. The family's pastor, Reverend Wendy Page, said Thomas has been suffering from mental illness and that his family believes that condition was the cause of the alleged stabbings, not hatred towards Jewish people. She said his family is sorry for the pain he has caused. But these sentiments from Thomas's lawyer and the family's pastor throws the mentally ill under the bus and offers no explanation for Thomas's motivations outside of his mental illness. It's important to remember that there are plenty of people diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia who aren't lashing out in violence against a targeted group of people. According to police and media reports, Thomas entered the home just before 10 p.m., screaming, I'll get you. Five people, all Hasidic Jews, were injured. One suffered a skull fracture and was unconscious and in critical condition. The 72-year-old man was in a coma for 59 days, but died in March of 2020. Rottenberg's son was also among the injured. Guests struck back, hitting the attacker with chairs and a small table. The attack lasted no more than two minutes. The suspect then fled the house and attempted to enter the synagogue next door, Congregation Netzach Yisrael, also headed by Rottenberg. But the doors had been locked to prevent his entry. It's alleged that he fled the scene after stabbing multiple people, but was apprehended two hours later in Harlem. NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea said that an automated license plate reader alerted officers that the suspect's car had crossed over the George Washington Bridge in New York City about an hour after the attack. So Thomas was stopped and taken into custody. Officials said Grafton E. Thomas had blood all over his clothing, smelled of bleach, but said almost nothing when officers stopped him. The attack began just as the rabbi was preparing to light the menorah to mark the seventh night of Hanukkah. Monsey, a hamlet in Rockland County outside New York City, is home to a significant Jewish population. This was just the latest in a spate of anti-Semitic attacks in New York and New Jersey. 
Governor Andrew Cuomo said the Monsi Hanukkah stabbing was the 13th anti-Semitic attack in New York since December the 8th and was endemic of the American cancer on the body politic. Cuomo said, This is violence spurred by hate. It is mass violence and I consider this an act of domestic terrorism. Let's call it what it is. Ramapo Police Chief Brad Wydell said it was unclear why the rabbi's house was targeted or if a specific ideology motivated the suspect. According to the official briefed on the investigation, Authorities did not believe Thomas was connected to recent anti-Semitic incidents in New York City. Senator Charles Schumer called on the FBI to investigate possible links between the Monsi stabbing spree and other recent attacks. The Simon Wiesenthal Center said it wants the FBI to create a special task force. Israeli UN Ambassador Danny Danan said, Enough talk. It's time for action to deter those who propagate this hatred. The 72-year-old rabbi Joseph Neumann who was repeatedly stabbed in the head during an anti-Semitic attack in December, succumbed to his injuries and died three months after the attack. In the spirit of the holiday, it's important to remember that Hanukkah commemorates the recovery of Jerusalem and subsequent rededication of the Second Temple at the beginning of the Maccabean Revolt in the second century BC. In many ways, Hanukkah is about the perseverance of Jewish people in the face of tragedy. Although this is easier said than done for those with first-hand experience with modern anti-Semitism in America, in the wake of the beloved rabbi's death, the daughter of Joseph Neumann said, My father's parents were survivors of the Holocaust. Growing up, I thought it would never happen again. Nowadays, I'm not certain. On November 25, 2020, in Dahad, India, during the Hindu festival of lights known as Diwali, three members of a Ratlam family, Govind Silanki, his wife Sharda, and daughter Divya were shot dead at their house by a violent gang led by Dilip Deval. On the night of November 25, 2020, Dilip Deval and his men Anurag Mayer, age 25, Gurav Biwal, age 22, and Lala Babhor, age 20, used the cover of firecracker sounds that night and shot the family. The police said he carefully chose that moment to attack. The police said Duvall decided to rob the family in Rotlam on learning that they had recently sold some land and they might have some cash at home. The victim ran a salon. While the three associates of Duvall were arrested, Duvall managed to flee and was on the run. After the triple murder case that shook the entire Rotlam town, police announced a reward of 3,000 rupees. Police have police announced a reward of 30,000 rupees for sharing information about Duvall's whereabouts. Dilip Deval was shot dead in an encounter in Madhya Pradesh's Rotlam. Five policemen, including two sub-inspectors, were injured in the encounter. Rotlam Superintendent of Police Gaurav Tuari said, A special investigation team of police got information on Thursday evening that Dilip was roaming near Kachrod Square in the city. When police cordoned off the area and tried to nab him, he ran toward an agriculture farm. Police personnel warned him, but he started firing. Police also retaliated and fired, end quote. After the gun battle, which lasted for a few minutes, the police team investigated the field and found Duwal had been hit and was lying in an unconscious state. He was rushed to a district hospital. Deputy Inspector General of Police Shushan Saxena said, Accused was shot during retaliatory firing by policemen. He was declared dead at the hospital. Five policemen have been injured during the encounter. End quote. The police in a statement said Duwal was a psycho killer who targeted houses owned by the elderly. He would kill them to ensure no witnesses remained. According to police, this was the fourth murder 
committed by DeWall in Rotlam. The first case against DeWall was registered in 2009 for raping and abducting a woman in Rotlam. He was accused of killing a woman in June. He had also committed two murders in his hometown, Dahad. DeWall, who hailed from the Dahud district of Gujarat, was the son of a railway guard and spent his school days in the Rotlam district of Maya Pradesh while his father was posted there. He built a gang comprised of his school friends from Rotlam and contacts from Gujarat. He was involved in at least six killings, including four in Madhya Pradesh and two in Gujarat. A few years ago, Dewal had jumped parole after being sentenced to life imprisonment for killing a Dahad-based businessman a few years back. He was also the prime accused in the June 2020 killing of a lady doctor, again in Madhya Pradesh's Rotlam district. Though he received life imprisonment in one of the murders in Dahood, he jumped parole two years back and had been living in Rotlam ever since. Madhya Pradesh Chief Minister Shivraj Singh Kuhan tweeted, I had issued strict orders for the arrest of such monsters as they don't have any place in our society. He shot at our policemen and they fought back bravely and killed him. I thank the police team on behalf of the state, you are our protectors. I also wish a speedy recovery to our injured policemen. Thank you for joining us on this special holiday episode of Hook Switch Hotline. Come back next week when we'll dive deep into more shocking true crimes. With every crime, someone somewhere has information that someone could be you. Email us at hookswitchhotline at gmail.com or leave a message at 415-448-7263.